0: Turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll continue our study this morning in this book, this is our 26th lesson in the book of 1 Corinthians, we find ourselves in chapter 4, verses basically 6 to 8, this morning we'll cover um, this morning I called this sermon, um, a Characteristics of a Conceited Church. <laughs> characteristics of a Conceited Church. I pray to God that doesn't describe our church, but it did the Corinthian church. And this is really, the Word of God is really our handbook that we use for our Christian lives. So we want to turn to it, and remember these were inspired words that Paul wrote these weren't just his thoughts off the top of his head. And so we believe that every verse, every word is inspired in the Bible we hold in our hands. So that's why we, when we teach, we teach through books of the Bible. And so we're in 1 Corinthians right now. And uh, just hit the worship button there. And we'll be good. Um, and, and so we're, we find ourselves in chapter 4. But remember what this church has been involved with. Um, And Paul has been very much a part of the Corinthian church. And he had to write to them these letters dealing with man's problems that had developed. And the Corinthians, unfortunately, had allowed the philosophies of the world and vanity and um, pride sin to creep into their congregation and it manifested itself in a lot of different ways and this letter was written by the founding pastor of the corinthian church can you imagine finding finding a church you're the first pastor only to hear 18 months later um, or several years later he was there for 18 months pastoring the church as he founded it but went on to find other churches but can you imagine hearing from the people who make up that congregation. Boy, something's not right here, Paul. And so he writes them this letter as a result of information he had received firsthand about some of the problems. And so 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, these are not letters of praise. These are letters that Paul wrote to them dealing with some major issues that were going on in their church. And the apostle Paul begins here in chapter 4 to get a little bit narrowed down on some things. Uh, He really becomes very direct in his words, in the phrases that he uses. And so follow along as I read our text for us this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 6 down through 13 there. I'll read that just to keep everything in context. Verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn... By us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Verse 11. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Pretty strong words that Paul uses here to this church in Corinth. And we're just going to look at a couple verses here of this, this whole text. But I want to remind you where we came from. Last week we looked at the minister and his ministry. And we first looked at verse 1 there, the minister's identity. And we said that they're basically a servant A pastor, an elder, is someone who serves the body of Christ. And we, by application as Christians, can apply that to ourselves. As Christians, we don't have the right to go out into a fallen world and act haughty or act self-righteous. We are to serve. And that word meant under rowers. It's like the belly of the beast way down in the gallows where all the refuse ends up in a boat. There's individuals down there making that boat move. And they don't ever get any praise And they're working continuously. And that's really what he was talking about here. And then he mentioned the word steward, which meant kind of a house manager, someone who's faithful over those things. And we talked about uh, the other word for servant, uh, which is basically a, a table waiter, you might say, somebody who's just doing menial things in a restaurant. And even... We talked about the word slave, do loss, a bond servant. And so that was the minister's identity. And then we looked at the requirement of the minister in verse 2, which was basically three things, sum it up quickly, faithfulness, trustworthiness, and really consistency in both of those. That's what's required. In verses 3 and 4, we saw the minister's evaluation. And we talked about how, that you know what? Paul basically says, what business is it you to judge me? He says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human being. And he's not saying that his pastors were above any criticism. He's not saying as elders or even as Christians that no one has the right to come and offer advice or to give us whatever. But in the end, the only thing that matters, beloved, is whose judgment? God's judgment. Because he goes on to say that sometimes other people's evaluation, even our own evaluation... Fall short. We don't even know our own hearts. We can't even understand half the times why we do the things we do. How are we going to be able to understand how someone else does something? And so he really lays down a, a line there and says, you know what? You shouldn't question people's motives. That's really his point. You shouldn't be evaluating other people's motives. And that word judge we learned meant to investigate, or question, evaluate. And when he talks about the court there, by any court, he's really talking about the word is any human day. In other words, here in this time, in this space that we live in, we don't have the ability to discern and make proper judgments when it comes to things like that. And so when we're in a marriage and we get in an argument, we say things like, I knew you did this just to make me mad. How do you know that? How would you even know that? There's no way you could know that. And we do the same thing with other believers and other people as well. You know, sometimes people park their car in front of our house. I don't know why. It just irritates me. Even when my car's not parked there, it irritates me. It's like, why do you park across the street, you know? It's not like I have anything there. It's just, I don't know why. It's just. And I remember early on thinking, this guy's just doing this to tick me off. Nothing could be further from the truth. But that's, to be honest, what I was thinking. And I really had to go before the Lord and repent and say, this is not my street.
1: I mean, yeah, I live on this
0: street, but it's not my street. I don't have the right to dictate who parks here. Thank the Lord that I have a house on a street. Thank the Lord that I have a nice long driveway that I could park cars in. I don't have to park on the street where it could get hit or something. What's the big deal? And sometimes we make big issues out of things that are just so menial. And see, based on the fact that they had thought that they had it all together, and that's kind of some of the the terminology Paul uses there. They're rich, and boy, they become rich, and they have everything they want. He's using sarcasm there. He's not saying that's true. But he really plays there in verse 5... Against the whole idea, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. What's the time? Well, the time is when the Lord comes back and we stand before him in that final judgment, as he talked about before. Paul says, listen, it's God who does the judging. It's God who does the rewarding. We're not involved in that. That's his role. So don't try to put yourself in that situation. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. Especially here in the context, he's talking about them passing judgment on who? Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And that's what they were doing. Well, how do you know that? Because we went through the text that said, I follow Paul. Oh, no, I follow Apollos. Oh, no, I follow Peter. Why were they doing that? Because they were making judgments. It wasn't the leader's problem. It was the people's problem. And we do the same thing today sometimes. I mean, congregations do it all the time to their pastors or their elders. They make judgment calls. Um, And they have a certain standard by which they judge. And it's different for all people. I mean, you could never please all those standards if you wanted to. There's some people that, you know, if you were to go visit them at their house just pop in and say, hey, you know, just stop by like we used to do in the olden days, they'd be offended. But then there's other people going, well, you never visit. (laughs) There's some people who say, well, you preach too long or you preach too short. Or you spend too much time studying the verses or you don't give enough application. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You don't show enough compassion or you show too much. Or maybe they dislike our personality. The Corinthians were doing that. Not just to each other, but they were doing it to their leaders. And so the apostle Paul says, you know what? Stop it. Stop doing that. That's not your role. That's God's role. So he says, don't go on passing judgment before the time. What's the time? He says there, but wait until the Lord returns. When the Lord returns, he's going to make the proper judgments. It's only the judgment of God that counts, beloved, upon our lives. If we could just get that in our mind and remind ourselves of that every day, it would alleviate a lot of personal problems we have with other people. And so what Paul is saying here is whatever you're coming up with against Apollos, against Cephas, against me, stop doing it because God is the only one that's able to judge. And you know what? He's coming just to do just that. So just back off. That's what he's telling him. And he brings that up. Remember in chapter three, verse 13, he says, each man's work will become evident. In other words, it's all going to work out. You may think, oh, that person's getting away with this. God's going to catch up with them. It's all going to work out. We don't need to be concerned about that. He says, for the day will show," show in verse three, now that is the time, the day when Jesus comes, because it is to be revealed with fire, and with fire itself will test not the quantity, but the quality of each man's work. So Paul says, don't keep on passing judgment on your leaders or on each other for that matter. God will set all things in order when he returns. He says he will bring both Uh, to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Now, he's not talking about some hidden sin that's in your life. That would not um, work out because it says in the Bible that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That would be a a condemning thing to do. And some Christians have the wrong idea that one day they're going to stand before God and behind them there's going to be a big movie screen. And they're going to have to sit there in humility as they, everybody watches all the sins that they've done. Since it, It's not going to work that way, beloved. God already knows that. He doesn't need to show you that. And you know what? They're already forgiven. He's already forgotten them. So he not just hit the pause button. He hit the delete button, and they're gone. They're not even there. And sometimes, as believers, we need to be reminded that, you know what? As much as we like to beat ourselves up when we fail and when we fall, God is saying, you know what? Pick yourself up and get on with it. I'm done. It's, it's forgotten. Move on. We need to learn to move on in our Christian walks, in our Christian lives, because it's God and God alone who knows the motives of men's hearts. No man knows the thoughts of a man or the motives of a man, except the man himself. And sometimes we even get that messed up. you ever do something? You're like, I don't know why I just did that. I have the slightest idea. We don't even understand ourselves. Only God does. That word bring to light there, it means to turn the light on. One of these days, God will turn the light on, and everything will be evident. Everything will make perfect sense. God's going to take care of it. He's going to manifest them all at one time, everything. It'll be disclosed. And the way he's going to do that is through the reward process. Whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, or whether it's precious stones and and things that will not burn up, that's how it will work. And there won't be any question about the motivation of a man's heart one day when he stands before God That will be the time when the rewards will be given. And as someone who's called by God to preach God's word, I want God's approval. I want God's rewards on that day, as should you. We don't want the adoration of men. What does that get us? A little pat on the head or the pat on the the shoulder? Man's approval? Why would we live for that? That's not what we're looking for. So he says, don't keep on passing judgment on each other because one day the Lord is going to come and he's going to deal with that. Each man's praise will come to him from God. And that's all we want. That's all we should want. So he points out here that in verse 6, we're going to start seeing him address some issue of pride within their lives. Um, The people whom God was using and the people who God would not allow to be used are going to stand out. There's going to be a definitely clear um, difference in the two. It's going to be just clear as a bell. And here we see the Corinthian church on one side of the issue and we see the apostles on the other. In the Corinthian church we see We see uh, conceit. We see pride. On the apostle's side of the issue, we see humility. And he wants us to see that same thing. And so we're going to look at the conceited church of Corinth right now. And I just want to say here, you're not going to find the word humility in this text. It's not there, but it's definitely implied on every corner, on every word almost. And... As Christians and as a servant of God, we have to recognize that humility is an essential part of the characteristic of someone who wants to serve God in any capacity whatsoever. And so he's really dealing here with the topic of humility without even bringing it up. And if you look throughout history, throughout the history of scriptures anyway, and even secular history too, a lot of times God's choicest leaders have always been, always without doubt, a humble individual. They're always humble people. You think of somebody like Abraham, back in Genesis 18, verse 27. Abraham said this, he answered and he says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. That's who Abraham viewed him as, himself as dust and ashes. is a recognition of his own humility before a holy God. Or Jacob in Genesis 32.10, he says, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. There's a sense of unworthiness. See, that's the problem with our society today. Everybody's entitled to something. We live in an entitled culture. And even within the church, people feel they're entitled to God's forgiveness. They're entitled to salvation. And that couldn't be furthest from the the truth. Even Moses in Exodus 3.11 says, when he talked to God, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He didn't feel adequate. Or Gideon in Judges 6.15, when he was given the command of the armies of Israel, He said, oh, Lord, how should I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my household. Gideon wasn't one to step up. Oh, yeah, you chose the right guy. I am the man for the the job. No, that was not his take on things. He said, who am I? You want to use me to do this? Or even in the New Testament, you see John the Baptist. Incredible. Incredible incredible individual. Some believe the most incredible individual that ever lived in a spiritual sense. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, he was invited by our Lord Jesus Christ to baptize him. Jesus said, yeah, I need to be baptized by you. And it says in verse 13 that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? You know, John didn't puff his chest out and say, hey, look who I'm baptizing now. <laughs> that wasn't his attitude. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, verse 27, he says, even he who comes after me, speaking of Christ, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And a tremendous amount of humility on John's behalf when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where you see in Luke 5, 8, where Peter After seeing the miraculous power of the Lord, it says he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We see it in the life of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 20. When he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says this, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, serving the Lord with all humility. That's how we are called as believers to serve him. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says this, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. I mean, it would be to God that most Christians look at themselves as insufficient. But we've been mesmerized and kind of infected, really, with the whole kingdom now, word of faith, Oh, you're sufficient, you're sufficient. Boy, you just declare this and you declare that and you have the ability to order God to do this and do that for you. That's a lie. Paul says, we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is who? Is from God. That's where our sufficiency comes from. Or in Ephesians chapter three, verse eight, he says, to me, Paul says, though I am the very least of all saints, Paul didn't have a high view of himself. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see it in the life of Peter. You see it in the life of the Old Testament saints. You see it in the life of Paul. You see it even in the life of Jesus our Lord in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Because God's choice as people to be used by him have always known Humility. Think of it this way. Pride and fruitfulness are incompatible. You can't be prideful and have fruit in your Christian life. You just can't. It's impossible. The supreme example of humility is the history of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you, you remember this verse, and learn from me. And then he says this, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is their leader? When's the last time your CEO or the president of your company reached out to you and said, you know, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I just want to share. No. You know, you've got to be a type A personality. you got to go in there take control of the boardroom. and That's not the way of the Lord. Matter of fact, in Philippians 2, 7, it says that the Lord humbled himself. Now remember, the Lord wasn't just some Joe down here on earth, he was God in a bod. He possessed all the attributes of God, yet he was in a human body. It's amazing. And for the very God of the universe to allow himself to come to the level of humanity through the incarnation, to expose himself to the vile things of this world, to have people spit upon him, To have people mock him and scourge him and beat him and then ultimately reject him and crucify him in a way, murder him in a way of crucifixion, the most humiliating way to die. You can see the humility of Jesus Christ because he took on humanity, took on a human nature. But you just look at what the scriptures tell us about him. He was born in a stable. Feeding trough. He had nothing in life. Said he had nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. He was poor. He was dependent. It says even he was partaking in our weaknesses. If he didn't have enough himself to deal with, he was willing to submit to the law to become a servant. The Bible says that he was even associated with sinners and with people who were despised by his culture. It tells us that he refused honor from men. That he wouldn't be a king when they wanted to make him one. That he washed feet. That he obeyed the Father. That he humbled himself. To suffering reproach, to mockery, even death. See, God's choice of people who serve him have always been people who are humble. Think of it this way. Humility is a channel that God uses to, to get us to fruitfulness in our, in our Christian lives. You have to have humility or you won't see the fruit. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter five, or 12 when Paul says, when I am weak, then what? Then I am strong. Why? Because it's God that makes him strong. What he meant was when I recognized that in myself I can do nothing, it's just then that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So you have to come to an end to yourselves in order to even get started in the Christian life, let alone persevere. And yet today in our churches, we make coming to Christ just like something that's just so simple, so easy. Just feel a little guilt over your sin. Pray a little prayer. And then just put some money in the offering every week and come to church and you'll be fine. Welcome to God's family. Beloved, that's not the salvation of the New Testament. That's not the salvation that Jesus spoke of. He spoke of a salvation for those who had come to an end of themselves. Every time. They had nowhere else to go. They had nothing else to trust in. They were backed into a corner. They were at their lowest low. And then and only then could God save them. Did God save them? See, we have to become what the New Testament really describes as some of these people who came to Christ, how they were transformed, they were changed. You look even at the Apostle Paul. Here's Saul out killing Christians. And what happens? Jesus Christ himself comes down. He has an encounter with him on the road to Damascus. It takes all of that to allow this man to become undone. He's blinded, he doesn't know what to do. This is a very educated individual, very religious person. And he is completely undone. And that's the role of God in salvation. To bring us to that point where we can't trust in anything but Jesus. We definitely can't trust in ourselves. That's why Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that's all introduction. That's why I said we're only going to get to a couple verses. But they had some issues in the Corinthian church with this. They were conceited, they had a problem with pride, they were boasters. We see that very clearly. They were continually boasting about who they were and about all that went on around them. If you look in the, the books, just take time and look through 1st and 2nd Corinthians over and over again, you'll see this topic come up. You'll see phrases like they gloried, they were puffed up, they boasted, they were vain. They had a real issue, it was a hard issue. And you know, if you read any scripture at all, you know that the Bible says basically the basis of all sin, of any sin is what? Is pride. It's pride. That's the underlying issue. Because all sin is rebellion against God. And rebellion against God amounts to setting my will against his will. And that's a prideful act. And so the Corinthians were definitely a prideful people. And they had their pride manifested, first of all, in their love for human wisdom and philosophy of this world. They thought they had it all figured out. And because of that, it created a division in their church. And the reason the church was divided and didn't understand what unity was... It's because it didn't know the blessed kind of unity that even we know here in our own church. See, the reason there was disunity in the church of Corinth was because they were polarized over political issues, over philosophical issues, over understanding of human wisdom. And they were pitting themselves against each other. I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And so it became a, a basis, an underlying foundation for pride to grow and to fester. So in addition to exalting human wisdom and the philosophy of this world, bringing that into the church, they also exalted and kind of lifted up their human teachers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. They all had their little groups Now, the apostles didn't feel that way. The leaders didn't feel that way. But the people had come to be very prideful about the group that they identified with. Now, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging or respecting a teacher or a pastor or an elder or even, for that matter, another Christian. That's what we're called to do. But they were exalting human leaders and it became an issue of pride. Sometimes... You can respect people too much, and then you begin to become po- boastful and prideful about who they are. And that loyalty that is cherished by any Christian leader ceases to be loyalty and it starts to be sin. <laughs> well, I only listen to this person, or I only listen to that person, and everybody else is wrong. We can't have that kind of an attitude in the church of Christ. We're not here trying to set ourselves up as the only church. We praise God for other biblically oriented and centered churches, godly ministries, godly men all over the country where Christ is lifted up, he's exalted. We're not to be set against one another as churches or even as believers Because that comes from the seed of pridefulness. And Satan himself likes to take advantage of things. He likes to pervert things. And so he sees people being loyal to somebody. Well, pretty soon that loyalty turns into almost a worship. And that's always wrong. Pretty soon the loyalty, which is a good thing, can turn into pride and conceit and arrogance. See, that's what he was dealing with here in the Corinthian church. And that's what happens when people begin to get prideful. Everything starts falling apart because humility is the basis of God's operation. And so we see here the first mark of the conceited church is that they walked away from the Word of God. They walked away from the Word of God. They wouldn't grow in the Word of God. They came up with their own standards. The apostles, on the other hand, never even thought of themselves as worth anything. They knew they were only, you know, mere vessels that God works through. They knew that there was sin in their life. They knew everything about themselves, that God was not a part of and and issues, but they lived in that humility. They were transparent. And everybody God has ever used is is characterized not by conceit, but by humility. You're going to find anyone who is used by the Lord has a characteristic of humility. But every time you find somebody who's unwilling to grow up unwilling to get out, get up under God's authority, the authority of his word. And even though they maybe go through the motions day by day, you're going to find conceit and you're going to find arrogance and pridefulness. And they're going to stand in stark contrast to each other. You're just going to be able to see it as light as day. So here in Corinth, you had this church who was a bunch of babies. They didn't want to grow up. They didn't want to continue to expose themselves to the word of God. They wouldn't get out of the nursery. They had their own standards, you might say. They had arrived. They needed no one. And they became indifferent to the word of God. And when you talk about the church, you're also talking about individuals. Would you agree? The church is made up of individuals. So the same characteristics that apply to the church apply to us as individuals. And these are the characteristics of a conceited church or a conceited individual. First of all, they become indifferent to the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Following right on the heels of verse 14, you see here people who are indifferent to the word of God. Um, Paul talked about preachers who preach the word of God and love the word of God, stewards of it, in in chapter 3, verse 14 there. And then, Here he's talking about people who are just totally abandoning the Word of God. Where the Word of God doesn't become the central thing anymore in the church. And that's where you get to back in verse or chapter one where he says, Well, I'm following Paul, I'm following Apollos, I'm following Cephas. I am of Christ, they even said. He wants us to understand that, you know what, you have to follow what God has already revealed to us in his word. We don't want to move beyond the constraints of God's word for anything dealing with our spiritual lives. And he says, I have applied all these things to myself. One translation says, I have figuratively applied. This is a good word. It comes... From a word that really denotes a change of place or condition, meaning shape or form. What's he saying? He's saying something that changes the outward form of something. Not the inward, but the outward. The Apostle Paul says, I am just changing forms, I am not changing the meaning. Nothing inward changes, I am just changing the forms. That's why he's applying it to himself, Paul, and and to Apollos. I've figuratively applied it to us. There's another word that means to be changed from within. That's not this word here. We get the word metamorphosis from that second word, but that's not the word that's being used here. This is just an outward change. There's only going to be an outward change. It's, it's just going to be a transition from here to there because we are being changed inwardly, constantly, from glory to glory, from faith to faith. So we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ and one day, one day, we will get the body to go along with that change. What a glorious day that will be. And so Paul is saying that he and Apollos were given to the church that they might have an outward form, a pattern to follow. Now remember who Paul was. He was their first pastor. Remember who Apollos was. He was the second pastor of the church. So he says, I've applied this, this meaning to both of us. And he says, I pray that you would not learn, or pray that you would learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. What is written? Well we're we're written it's written in the Word of God that we are to appreciate our leaders and our pastors and our elders. First Thessalonians five twelve. We are to appreciate and encourage and regard people who preach and teach the Word of God? If they are faithful to Christ and his word, they serve his word. They're stewards of his mysteries. They're servants of Christ. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. He wants us to appreciate these individuals. Or in first Timothy chapter five, verse seventeen, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't appreciate and, and honor those who are in authority over us in the church or teaching or whatever it might be. But he says, Don't go outside of the bounds of Scripture. He's really telling them, stop going beyond what scripture allows in that department. And then look at what he says, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. See, the followers of Apollos were puffing themselves up over the followers of Paul. And the followers of Paul were puffing themselves up over the followers of Peter. And whenever that Happens. It starts out as just a love for maybe their teacher. I've seen this happen in in churches that are larger than ours, where maybe they have various teachers or they have various Sunday school teachers for adult groups and things like that. And I've seen where a group of people pretty soon are whispering in their Sunday school teachers, "Here, you know, you you, you you teach so much better than the pastor. You should really be you should be the pastor." And I've seen it where it just destroys a church. Just destroys a church. And that's exactly what was going on here in the church of Corinth. That loyalty to that teacher, that love for that teacher, that gratitude to the teacher turns to hostility toward other teachers. So that you can't listen or accept to anyone else or you're wrong. Glory goes way beyond what God lays down in his word as far as appreciation for other people. Glory never goes to man. You don't exalt the man. You appreciate the man. But scripture is clearly, Paul is saying, understand the the guidelines that God has given you. Because when you start exalting the man, you've exceeded what scripture has allowed you to do. And we just have to be very, very careful about that. And it never generally comes from the top down. That's usually not the case. There are some, unfortunately, in the ministry that really are that way. (laughs) They want the adulation of men and women. Boy, they, they, they eat that stuff up all the time. But that's usually not the case for someone who's being true to the characteristics of an elder or a pastor or a Christian leader even. And so what Paul is saying here, you know, to help you understand, I've taken Apollos and myself. You know, we are examples to you that you may learn not to exceed what is written. But you know what? They could care less. They didn't care because they had taken the word of God and basically threw it out the window. They don't care what Paul is saying to them at this point. It's like the On the uh, Charlie Brown thing, when the, the one person talks and it's just blah, 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 that's what they're hearing. And he's saying, you've exceeded what Scripture allows you to do as far as being loyal to your teachers or being appreciative of your teaching. You've exceeded Scripture. And you've become arrogant in behalf of one against another. That word arrogant or puffed up is the word. It means to inflate, to blow up. Someone wrote, when someone is arrogant, he's just a big old gas bag. (laughs) A big bag of wind. And that's what he's calling him. That's what he's saying. You become. You become arrogant. You've puffed yourself up. You've inflated yourself and your view of yourself. And you have inflated even the view of the people who minister to you. And the reason that, be, that happens, beloved, is because people attach themselves to a personality. They attach themselves to a celebrity pastor or whatever when they should be attaching themselves to Christ in Christ alone. Now, most of us would say, well, I would never do that. But you have to be careful. You can appreciate godly people Realize that they have been given to you you as a blessing from the Lord. But you don't ever attach yourself to one individual. When you begin to exalt an individual, you're in trouble. And the reason you're in trouble is because that individual's flawed. That individual's just like you. They're a sinner saved by God's grace. So he points out to the, you know what, you, you, you're, you're not a person, you're not a church who loves the word. You, you become indifferent to the word of God. And then secondly here at Conceited Church, in verse 7, is really ungrateful, ungrateful. Look at what he says here. He says, he asks some questions. He says, for who sees anything different in you? That's his way of saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? He really wants them to understand that they had an inflated view of themselves. In verses 9 to 11... He kind of points that out over in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Whew. I'm glad he didn't, didn't mention, oh wait, what's the next verse say? And such were some of you, you Corinthians, but, look at this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were set apart by God's grace, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he points out to them, he has to point out to them time and time again, why? Because they forgot. They forgot They became ungrateful regarding their own salvation. They began to become self-righteous, thinking the only safe place for them in the world was in the confines of four walls of a church. God forbid we should go out there and rub elbows with all those sinners. Oh, it gives me the just to think about it. And yet Jesus did just the opposite. That's where he lived. He lived with the sinners. So much so that they they said he was a friend of sinners. So he asked that question. Why why do you think you're so much different? You're not. You came out of the same stock everybody else did. You're all sinners. And then he says, what do you have that you did not receive? He wants them to know. What, What? you know, first of all, why do you think you're so superior? Secondly, why do you why do you think that you are just um, just so sufficient in and of yourself? He points out, what do you have that you did not receive? James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from where, not from ourselves, but from God. See, they thought, "Well, no, I, you know, we're above all this. We don't need anything from Paul. What's he going to teach us?" I mean, that's a very honest question. What do you have that you did not receive? Think about it in your own life, in your own career, in your own spiritual journeys. Think about how many times we give ourselves credit for things that we really have no control of. I mean, we had no control over where we would be born, who we would be born to, what kind of social class we would be born into, what kind of brain matter we would have between our two years. We had no control over that. And yet so many times we think that we have a say in those things. And we begin to become prideful. Sometimes our own success in ministry or business or personal lives can really be a strong source of pridefulness Because it's God who gives you the health every day to get up and show up to work every day. It's God who gave you that gray matter between your two ears that allows you to make decisions in milliseconds. Everything we have that is anything substantial is not because we have made it, our IQ, our personalities, our shape, our size, our parents. That's all what God has given to us. And the context here is dealing with spiritual things. He's asking that question, why are you so arrogant? As if you can go around judging preachers by your own standards. As if you can live this way. What is it that you have, Paul is asking spiritually, that you didn't receive? I mean, they wouldn't even have had a church if it wasn't for Paul going there. And now some of them are his worst enemies. I mean, any believer with any honesty would have to say, beloved, that all that he has that is meaningful in the Christian life, he has received. He didn't give birth to it. That's what Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They didn't realize that. They missed that point. And then he asked the question, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He just wants them to know that, hey, you know, the stuff that you do have, that came from God. That came from God. So don't think yourself as superior. Don't think you you have everything that you need. Don't be ungrateful, is what he's saying. Next week, we'll look at self complacency and the answers that he gives to these questions that he asks. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes we can grow conceited, we can grow prideful. We can grow even arrogant in our own standing, thinking that somehow we have arrived and everybody else hasn't. Lord, I thank you that we're in a church that preaches and practices transparency among the body, Lord, there's, there's no need to put on a show here. I know we're just a small little church, but that is one of the qualities that we cherish. That when someone's down, we can get right down there with them and help them. When someone's lifted up, we can rejoice with them. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to minister that spirit of unity here in our church. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we pray that if there's any here today who is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, uh, I pray that they would be drawn to the Savior. As only you can draw them. We can't do anything in that department. We can expose them to the gospel. We can preach the word of God. We can invite them to trust in Christ. But ultimately, that comes as a direct result of you working in their hearts and their lives, drawing them to yourself. And so we entrust that to you. We pray for our weekend that we would have a blessed weekend, that our time would be one of remembrance for those who've given their lives, and yet a time where we can rejoice with family and friends and share fellowship. We ask you to bless our day today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.